This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with the great Steve Schwarzer, you got to take care of little business. I know, you guys. You need something to... You need something to seal your stuff with. Whether you're making tools, you're making hammers, axes, knives for your wood, for your steel. Wouldn't it be nice to have something that finishes great and is food safe? Like Axwax. Axwax.us. They make all natural food safe wax for your axe or your knives, for your steel, for your wood, and it's great. And you have the ability to give your customer, especially if you're making culinary stuff, you have your ability to give your customers something that is food safe. There's no petroleum byproducts and is really great. And a lot of you guys have been really raving about it. And I'm psyched because Axwax is back with me. Uh, Noah has been super supportive of this podcast because you guys have been doing a great job. So keep buying that Axwax, axwax.us. Put in promo code FULLBLAST10 and you're going to get 10% off your order, which is great. The next thing is... We need to rethink how we see about a website. Your website is there to help you if you're a small business or you're trying to do a side hustle or you're trying to get something squared away. You have to see your website as not only your marketing department and your questions and answers department, but it's also your sales point. It's the way that people can buy your product from you without you having to do a million emails. Go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill out the paperwork, and Andreas Kalani will make you a beautiful website. And if you already have a website but it you know, could use a little bit of an update, he'll also act as a uh, consultant, and he'll fix it up for you. Maybe you want to change the logo. Maybe you want to change the dynamics of it all. Maybe you want to in- incorporate new things. He can help you out. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill out the paperwork and decide that you want to get involved with a, uh, let's say you want to get involved with like a, like a convention. You want to go to the Blade Show or something and you want to get a table. Maybe you need a tablecloth with your information on it. Maybe you need the, 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 all the paperwork and the, maybe you need the posters and stuff like that. He's got 25 years of experience as a graphic designer and he will get you squared away. So go get yourself squared away with Andreas Kalani, my guest Steve Schwarzer did, and we are going to get yourself a good website or, you know, take care of a guy. He's a maker making stuff for other makers, and that's good enough for me. My guest is an extraordinary person. Steve Schwarzer not only is an ABS master bladesmith, one of the, one of the originals, he is a weightlifting champion. He's, a, he's an airboat champion. He's not to mention he's just one of the most supportive people in the maker community. I'm thrilled to have you. Steve, how are you? I'm, I'm near perfect for an old man. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Near perfect? You're, about, you're a little bit more perfect than most guys your age. <laughs> uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> what have you been up to lately? Usually, usually I'll see you. Maybe you're with Ashley Childs. Maybe you'll be running around teach, teaching classes. What have you been up to lately? I've been doing a lot of all the above i spent 10 days out with will stelter and just had a ball and got to spend a lot of good time with ashley and her her new elk and hammer adventure i've been trying to help her with that and uh you know just making stuff i just had a young man that uh in a shop for a week he's a special operator i won't go into his details but 
I had him for a week teaching him, and uh, we did an extraordinary blade together, and the design work was all his. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. How, I enjoy how, it. How good of a guy is Will Stelter? He is super. He's probably one of those. If you were picking a kid out of a catalog, he'd be right on the top of the heap. <laughs> but would you get? A, would you get a discount? Would you get, have to get a discount to get a Will Stelter? You pay full price. <laughs> I had to pay full price. But <laughs> <laughs> now he's he's super, and he comes out of a great family. He's a very family oriented guy. Uh, I think the world of him. He's 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 exceptional. Laura and I both love him. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a great. But he's become a, a real. The funny thing is, is I've become friends with him, and it's we're like kind of an unlikely friendship because I'm like you know this like older guy from New York, and he's from you know Montana or Cal or Seattle or wherever. We have we come from t- totally different families, but we always get along very well. It's actually kind of pretty funny. Oh, uh, he's he's something else. Um, yeah, he he is uh, a straight shooter. And uh, very talented, very gifted young man. Uh, he works through problems very well. And as you know, in our business, the whole thing's about problem solving. Yeah. And and that's what we're doing. I'm going to try to put in a, one of my earpieces so I can hear okay. you on the other side. Okay. Uh, ho- hopefully I won't set the world on fire. Well, I, you might set the world. You just Go ahead and set the world on fire. It's not a big deal. That's fine. <laughs> well, I like to hear out of both ears. I, I, yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it's know, interesting. Something about this, uh, this, this uh, headset. It's only playing on one side, but it'll work. I'll live with it. But can you hear me at all? Can you oh hear yeah, me well? I, can, I can hear you well. Right. I can hear you okay. well. It's just a little bit foggy. Okay. All right. Well, he, you know what's interesting talking about what you just said about Will Stelter. You know. One of the things about this podcast is I've been talking to so many young, talented makers, and there are there's something about the makeup of a lot of these makers. There, it, a lot of it comes from support from their family. A lot of them are very supportive in terms of what they're doing. I see that with Will. I've, met, I've talked to Will's mother a couple times. She's just a wonderful person. They have a very supportive family. When I think about, I listened to the episode that you did with Josh Smith, which was amazing. Josh Smith does a great podcast. I'm crossing my fingers that he does more. The guy's about as busy as he gets with the Montana Knife Company, but he does a good job. He's a really good interview, and he had a great interview with you. What I was fascinated by was your stories of as a young man growing up in Texas, and your father was in aeronautics. Right. And... What surprised me the most was he was was he building airplanes at your house? Yeah, yeah, that was that was amazing. My, is, my, da- we, my dad was an exceptional guy. No, what do you? I mean, no, no, you got me, you got me. Yeah. What what got him into aeronautics? He was a he was a mechanical genius. He was uh, he was raised in Austin, Texas. Uh, my mother and him both raised in there. And my dad, um, my grandfather was a, a very unusual character. He was a builder. He built the, uh, he actually built the farmer's market in Austin. Uh, most of the major public buildings there were built by my grandfather in the city of Austin. Did a lot huh. of the state schools, prison systems, all kinds of stuff. He had a big construction company. And my dad grew up in that, but he decided he didn't want to dig ditches 
But when he was nine years old, he took my grandmother's clock apart and uh, fixed it. <laughs> it actually, wow. I can take anything apart. I didn't get that gene. I can take it in anything apart. I just can't put it back together. But he could. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when he was in the uh, Army Air Corps, and uh, he flew some, and uh, then he wound up over in the repair section mostly. And uh, right after World War II, uh, he was involved uh, with a, an aeronautical company there in the Fort Worth, Dallas area, but he worked in the Berlin airlift. And he was working huh. 20 hours a day on that flight ramp when they were flying stuff into Berlin. And and he just he stayed with that company. It was back in the days when people were very loyal to who they worked for. And he, he worked for that company over 33 years. But wow. he could build and repair anything. And one of his hobbies was that he could repair airplanes and he actually built airplanes in the backyard he built a tt1 a p51 which i wish i had it now i'd sell it it's worth millions you could get one uh built an aronka and he built a steerman all in the backyard and it was funny and that's we remember him doing this stuff as a kid he'd be working on these airplanes they'd bring in on trailers and then they'd haul them out in pieces and put them together and fly them off somewhere but a, a funny sidebar story is my sister, Kate, who's, I love, <laughs> she, she's amazing. She's a lot smarter and better looking than me. Anyway, <laughs> she's a clinical <laughs> psychologist and very smart, but Kate's got two sp- speeds and slow and off uh, when, she, <laughs> when, she, when she talks. If you push her, she goes to off. But anyway, she calls me up in kind of a panic, and uh, and uh, what's unusual for her, and she says, "Have you talked to Dad lately?" This was way later in years, and uh, I said, "No, why?" She said, "I think he's off his meds." I said, "Well, honey, I don't think he's on meds." No, you don't understand. I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "Well, I asked him what he was doing. He said he's working on an airplane. He said if he could get the sob to fly, he was going to fly it." And and I went, oh. So now we're looking at a scenario from secondhand lion. And so I called I called my dad up and I said, what are you doing? Ah, Willie gave me some of these airplanes and I'm working. I'm trying to get one of them to run. And I said, what kind of airplanes? He said, oh, the radio control things. I went, oh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but what my sister remembered was full-size airplanes. <laughs> I would just imagine. I would imagine living in a family. I would. What I. What I. What I glean from it is, is now that I know that your grandfather was in the construction, that that your father probably understood the idea that you can do these massive things. I would imagine that you would probably say to yourself, if you're especially if you're watching your dad building airplanes in the backyard, right. that not a lot of people are telling him no, you can't do that, or you shouldn't be doing that. Right. That was back when you were kind of responsible for yourself and you didn't. There wasn't right. a neighborhood watch. <laughs> what you had was the neighborhood watch. Everybody came to watch or help if they could. <laughs> was he? Did he fly? Did he ever fly the ones that he built? Or uh, No, I've flown in airplanes and I've actually flown a couple of planes in the past for a little bit under guidance, but I've never had a license. And and it, But he would fly the planes? Yeah. Yeah, actually, wow. he, he he my mother pulled his pilot's license. He uh he was working out at uh, at an aircraft company, and they had Marine uh, Marine Corps uh, 
uh, guys that run the radio towers, they give you clearance of uh, air controllers. And he had a license to taxi, this is during the Vietnam War, he had a license to taxi F-8 fighter planes because they had to move them around to work on them. So he had a license to do that, but he didn't have a license to fly one. And uh, so he was out one <laughs> one day, and he pulled the, out on the runway with the thing he called the tower, and he was joking. He asked for clearance to leave, and they gave it to him joking, <laughs> but he left. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I guess and if you he, get the clearance, yeah. you, don't, you don't stop. Yeah, he went for a ride, and he buzzed our house and that evening he wasn't allowed to fly anymore so oh my gosh well growing up with the father like that i mean obviously it's a guy who you know not i don't say he's pushing his luck or something like that but i mean i get i get the feeling that he was very encouraging of being bold yeah he wanted me to play football because he played football for army and he was pretty good he was always a professional athlete and a big guy and uh I just I didn't fit that pattern. I don't know what pattern I fit it. I if you know in today's society I would have the alphabet after my name because I get distracted so easily. And uh, but the that curiosity or that ability to learn with that focus disability is something that it's a great benefit to you if you can harness it. And it took me yeah. years to figure that out. But I I, I became best friends with my dad probably after I was 40 years old because I realized how much he had sacrificed for our family. Yeah, and, I can imagine. Uh, great guy. Great guy. Growing up, I mean, you're surrounded by people who are very capable. Like, I, I you know, I, I can't help but make the connection between your childhood seeing your father building airplanes and mm -hmm. the fact that you're an innovator. You're an innovator in a number of different ways. And I can't, I can't help but think that, you know, when, when parents are raising their kids, they're not raising them by the things that they say, but the actions that they do. And it would be hard for me to not make the correlation between seeing your dad building airplanes you know, in in the house with with all the you know the unstoppable things that you've done. When you were in high school, what were your interests? I'd find grades I liked, and I'd just stay in them. Hmm. <laughs> like, like I mean, what, what what was what was interesting you? What I mean, what was interesting you back then? Well, I, well the only I didn't have any real interest at school. At uh, it was a struggle for me because. Like I said, they don't have what they have today where they understand how people that have this thinking process thing going on. But uh, actually, I do think a little bit. I'm just kidding. But I, I, <laughs> I, my first uh, real touch with anything that I loved was I had to be outside of the community that I lived in because it was very cloistered, very tight. Everybody knew everybody kind of thing. So the same people always won the prizes and got judged best for this or whatever. Anyway, I uh, was in the seventh grade and I had a shop teacher named Joe Hodge. And uh, those guys are protected like ex-presidents. Uh, you can't get to them. It takes a long time. But I did a, a hot metal project in the seventh grade. That's back when they had shop class and they did forging and stuff like that. And it had table saws and you could, you know, you could make stuff. And so I forged a chisel, and I think I got a C-plus or some kind of thing on it. But it that planted a seed in me, and this was in junior high school. And then I didn't do any more forging for years and years and years until I got off in the aircraft industry a little bit. 
but I did that and but that planted a seed in me and then years later when I helped uh, I wrote the mosaic chapter of Dr. Jerome's book on custom folding knives I wanted to find this guy and show him where that seed went because those those shop teachers that took time with people like me are highly unusual and they're very rare, and I was very surprised he was still alive after all that length of time. But I did find him, and I, I, I got him on the phone. I said, I said, Mr. Hodge, I said, this is Steve Swartz, you remember me? He said, oh, oh yeah, I remember you. <laughs> 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 he, he was very kind. Anyway, I sent him an autographed copy of that book and told him I really appreciated what he had done for me because he didn't judge me. He just... He just let me be in amongst the rest of them, and that, yeah. that was a that was a good thing. There's something about art classes and shop classes. When I was a kid, we had a shop class, and there was something about it that it was very, it was accept, it was almost, it was accepting. I remember when I was very young, I in my shop class, we I made like this little penguin that I just wanted to keep in my pocket this little toy penguin. And it was like the, the teacher didn't judge me. I was very young. It was like third grade or something like that. And he liked the fact that I was interested in it, regardless of whatever it was. And I, there is something to be said about these shop tea classes and art classes. And for you, it's totally like the butterfly effect. I mean, considering what Mr. Hodges did for you and the fact that you it, it, it catapulted you down this incredible road. I mean, he must have been pretty amazed. Yeah, he was at, at at the level of the work, but he was also uh, he was quite taken back that I remembered him. But I've never ever, and I don't know, it's my system. I never forget people that help me yeah. because it was so rare that I it probably was thousands of people tried to help me that I didn't realize they were trying to help me at the time. But when somebody takes a personal interest in me, I don't forget it. Hmm. I don't forget it because those are the people that push you along. You know, uh, you look at uh, at the modern world and you look at it, and uh, I've got a little different philosophy now. Is uh, everybody has an agenda? You have an agenda. I have an agenda. My wife, who I love more than living, has an agenda. We're looking for people that are flowing in the same direction we're going. Yeah. So that you don't have all this negative energy coming trying to pull you back the other way. You just sidestep it and go on. You don't dwell in it. You, you you stay busy moving forward. And that's what I do. It's like uh, developing patterns or uh, doing some of the forge welding techniques and stuff I developed very early on. It's problem solving. And uh, even that philosophy has changed the the era you see all these young guys they do all the forged and whatever it is and all the stuff and they've arrived but they realize that they, they don't know that they're just starting a journey this whole thing is a journey it's endless and you don't have time to explore it all that's why i teach and i'm having all these gifted people it's like watching you work down at uh down at our buddy's place down there at doghouse forge you know, you've got all these forging skills that you bring into the knife business, and a lot of people are not aware of how talented you are in that arena, but that, that's what drives you forward, you know, as you watch that. And I'll, you go through a, a class like that, and maybe just like I was sitting off the side watching uh, you and Jonathan work, I'm picking up technique. 
I'm mining. I go through and, and there'll be little pieces that rub off on me and I don't even realize it until I get back up to my shop. I'm trying to do something. So, oh yeah, that's what they did down there and that gives me a little a little toehold to help climb that wall to get to where I want to go with my my development. Well, you're very kind. And number two is I love how positive you are. So it may, I was my my question I was going to ask the follow up question in regards to when you call your shop teacher Mr. Hodges back. Obviously, you're you're too positive to ask him why he gave you a C plus because that's what I would have been. Like. I would have said to him, "I'm like, I mean, come on. I mean, the C plus. I mean, I'm just sending you the. You know, I'm on top of yeah. my game. I mean, you got to fix that grade." You know. <laughs> I a, he probably doesn't. I don't even remember what the grave was. It just sounded like a good, <laughs> sound like a good number. I didn't want to be a D, but uh, <laughs> but I didn't want to. I didn't want to sound like an A either. You know, <laughs> if if you're making D chisels in the seventh grade, Mister Hodge is a little bit strict, don't you think? I mean, yeah, that would could. be crazy. That would be totally crazy. <laughs> this chisel is a D. Come on, seventh grade teacher. Come on, help me out here. Yeah. So when when you went you, it sounds as though you before you were into making knives and stuff like that you were a metal you were a welder. I know that we talked before but down in Doghouse Forge and you told me all these stories. The fact that you had a you know a, a foundation in metalwork. You know, what were you doing in metalwork? You railings or how what were you I did, I did I did some of that, but that was later on. In the early, early 70s, I did that, but I was building jet airplanes in the late 60s. Wow. And I built F8s, F8J and K models, A7As and E's. I built the, I was on the team that built the first 747 vertical stabilizer that was ever built for 747 jet. I was the, <laughs> I always say, well, my first power hammer job was on a Yoder power hammer, and we were, we were, quote, power-forming domes for Saturn rockets out of sheet metal. And there was a guy there, and I forget what his name is now, but we had a big, deep-throated Yoder power hammer, and we were forming these pressure domes for Saturn rockets. These are the rockets that went to the moon. Wow. And I was the dummy on the other end of the sheet that he was pulling around going, keep up, but I was, I, you know, that was my contribution to that. So I was able to see a lot of very, very interesting stuff as a very young man. Do you think that that experience helped you in terms of the efficiency of work? Because I can't imagine what it's like working for an aeronautics company. It's, it's pretty neat. I actually won several awards out there for being productive. Wow. At, uh, you know, some of my friends would say, well, that was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually did and I was in a sheet metal uh, department but it was to do with forging hammers they had big air hammers the first air hammers I ever ran were in this company and they were big Seco stamps and uh, some of the dies weighed tons and they were making great big aluminum aircraft parts they were forging aluminum and it was it was an amazing process that was my first uh Running with with hammers was in that forging department. The, I love I love when I talk to people who've had experience in metal shops, and I can't even imagine what it would be like at the level that you guys were at, top of the line tools and techniques, and you must have been just pulling in information every minute. I was pretty curious, actually. Uh, I've always been curious, and uh, and everything I do is problem solving. That's uh, 
whether it's with steel or aluminum or titanium or whatever I want to work with, I, I've got a curiosity and then I won't let anything stop me from finding my way to a solution. And, and the, the thing is, is solutions and physical stuff, you know, like physics, where you got Newtonian physics involved, it's a... Uh, that solution is not endemic to the United States. You can, if you can, there. If you find a good solution to a metal problem, it can it can nuclei independently anywhere. And I, I'll give you a, a for instance. I, I I developed a technique in the '80s where I was doing these quote panel blades. Uh, Kyle Royer, a lot of young guys are doing it now, where they're cutting on a bias and they're jump welding all these pieces together. Okay. Well, jump well's been around since the beginning of time, but the application to knives I thought was new when I did it in 80, 81, when I made my first panel blades, I think. Anyway. What is a, excuse me, what is a jump weld? Can you just explain it? It's a scarf, scarf weld where you've got two tapered pieces and you forge weld them together. Now, okay. what they're doing on these mosaic bars in order to get the pattern to the end, they're cutting the bar on about a 35, 40 degree angle. And they're stacking all the pieces up, tack well and forge well, and that puts the end cut to the outside of the blade. It's a pretty common technique. A lot of people use it. A lot of uh, we used to do that zigzag, where you would uh, unfold it like an accordion cut. Okay. Okay. And then now, now most of the guys they just cut them completely off and lay them and stack them and weld them. Very common technique now. But when okay. I was doing it, I didn't think anybody else was doing it. And that's where we get back to this this other thing. Is, uh, I was doing it, and I was doing it on both sides of a blade. I've got pictures of the blades. I've got some of the stock here that I did where I put multiple panels over a center core on both sides of the blade. And I thought, Coke, I invented that. Well, I, I got ready to write an article. It had been a few years ago, and a very knowledgeable young guy, I called him, and he's into antiquities and stuff, and I was telling him I was going to write this article about it, and I thought that I'd kind of developed that. He said, I have something you need to see. And I said, okay. And he sent me a pamphlet, and it was a pamphlet about a Javanese swordsmith that was using exactly that technique in 1992. Hmm. In, in 1992, he was had that technique. It was in this panel, but that guy's dead now. I don't know how old he was. I don't know whether he learned that from his dad or his grandfather because they're traditionalists. You know, they're tribal smiths. They pass pass all that information forward by word of mouth and showing. And I thought, well, it was a great idea and it worked for him. But now, I just because I came up with it independently doesn't mean that it's my technique. So I had to rethink all that. Right. It, it, because it's a solution to a problem. And so now when I say, well, I did this then, but there may be some guy living in a cave that's still doing it or did it before I was born, because that's the truth. But it's called parallel thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you went all the way to school. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I was, I was, I would be a better student now than when I was in school. I think that age has changed me completely in terms of learning. I'm far more interested in learning after I went to school. Like I wasn't, I didn't have my heart set. And now it's like I was expected to go to school as opposed to now I'm actually interested in things. 
Right, and that it, it, it's wonderful. I mean, the, the pursuit of this stuff is just it. It consumes me. I get up every day. I go. Well, first thing I do is open my eyes, and if I wake up with polio, I won't tell Laura because she might throw me away. But I, I go. God, I got another day. I'm going to shop. <laughs> so re- I, I was. Uh, you know, I I'd interviewed uh, about a year ago. I interviewed a young man named Tyler Bell, and he works. I think his family. He and his family work for Boeing. And I asked him what it was like building something in an aeronautics place and then actually seeing it fly. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it felt like for you to work on things that went on these Saturn rockets. What was that? What is that feeling? That was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to see all those little bits and parts and pieces come together. And in those plants, they get a lot of contracts for different things. And and one of the unusual things is uh, it was in the 60s, titanium was rare. Hmm. And we had some shapes came through. They call them hat pants, but these were actually the leading edges of a wing that came through. Of course, you didn't know that's what it was at the time because this thing didn't exist. But actually, <laughs> when I, I went over to Huntsville one time, I, uh, we were up at Batson's, and they had a D-Watt SR-71 sitting there. And I looked at the leading edge of the wing, and I went, oh, my. I've seen those parts before. And those things had come through our factory. And wow. I'd actually worked on them. Wow. And, and that was mind-blowing. That was Would mind-blowing. You- I just I almost wept. Would you ever feel like, I hope I did a good job. I hope I didn't come in hungover that day on on whatever (laughs) part. Because that would be my, I mean, I'm naturally a pessimist. So I would imagine, I would always automatically think, I hope I was on the money with this one. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's, uh, (laughs) it was, I don't know. The whole thing was an adventure for me and I was raised in it. So it wasn't abnormal. You know, you don't see the majesty of things until you get back and get perspective on it. Once you get old uh, yeah. enough to get perspective, then you begin to see the majestic view. But when you're in it, it's like the forest for the trees. All you see is the moss on the ground at your feet and the next tree. Yeah. It, you've got to get old enough to look out at it. That, But that's that's that takes a lot of self-reflection because, I mean, I grew up, my dad was a painter, and I saw a lot of really great paintings growing up. So it was hard for me to kind of appreciate painting because at a young age, I'd already been, I'd been living with a guy who was one of the, he's just an exceptional painter. So I can imagine that, that you did take some things for granted. Oh, no, I, I took a lot of stuff for granted that actually, I don't know, I don't know when you become self-aware. I'm still hmm. working on it. Yeah. But I don't know. It, I, I think you're already pretty self-aware. I would imagine you're pretty self-aware. I so, think so. I th- I pretty, I, you know what? I, th- I know so. I mean, I, when I look at you and seeing all the things, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the, you know, we, there's, we've just like scratched the surface. I mean, it seems as though you've lived enough lives for a couple people. You know, it's like, or at least more than, th- or more than four. A couple wasn't giving you enough credit. A couple was not giving you enough credit. I apologize. A couple is pretty pathetic, actually, now that I think about it. But I mean, I'm amazed that, like, at what point? I mean, what point did you start to get involved with with uh, martial arts? Because you become 19, a, a hot... 1962. That's what because I, I was bullied. <laughs> I was the, like the smallest kid in the neighborhood. Everybody beat me up for fun. 
And then uh, I took my first karate class in 1962, and uh, I never stopped learning. And then, of course, my dad moved us to California out there. He was working on a project for the same company, and I fell in with a bunch of Samoan kids, and uh, they were lifesavers. They they were my first, what I call, really true life friends. And uh, they took good care of me and my sisters and family, and... We loved them, and I, uh, one of the guys is still alive, and uh, we're still friends. I, I, I think of him often, but they they took me into the culture, and they turned me into a monster. <laughs> they, taught really? me, they taught me how to fight, take care of myself. Yeah, they were tough guys. They're born at 150 pounds, and then they get huge. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I I would see I, I would think that I would think that that especially making that change to move to California was d- difficult. But you've become so you become very very proficient in martial arts. Hmm. When I think about the stuff that you've done in the in the past, it seems like you take something and then you keep going upon it. Like the yeah. martial arts was what kept you going into martial arts. I mean, now you got these two Samoan friends. What do you need to kick somebody's ass now? You know, it's like in my mind, I'm just like, okay, like that's it for me. I got these two guys for a while, so I don't have to worry about that. Well, I'd, what I would do is, is it, anytime I'd run into anybody that had any skill sets in that arena, I was highly motivated to learn from them. Hmm. And that's just like when I met Mike Foster, who's recently passed away. He's my primary sensei in uh, Yoshikai Karate. And uh met him in 76. And I've been doing Kempo, and I've been teaching a Kempo class for a friend of mine for a year or two. And, and, and like I said, uh, my claim to fame is I've had my ass kicked by some of the toughest people on the planet. <laughs> I wasn't ever very good at martial arts, but I was enthusiastic. <laughs> I enjoyed it, but uh, but that means pro- that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't see. Yeah, my vision. <laughs> well, what like, do you mean? My vision was like twenty four hundred. My glasses came off. Everybody was fast. <laughs> everybody was a blur. <laughs> so he had to learn to counterpunch pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I've always been very envious of people who take on something. Because, I mean, obviously, you weren't thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to become a professional martial artist. I mean, it was something that you saw in yourself and then you really used to better yourself, right? Yeah, and it did. What it did is when you get to a certain level of proficiency, and it really doesn't matter what craft is, but especially in martial arts, is it gives you a level of confidence that you don't, you're not intimidated and uh, you don't have to make noise, and it's very easy to go, excuse me, I'm sorry, let me go on my way. And then you're thinking, God help you if you don't, because it's that training is for a reason, and you fall back on that reflex, and it saved me many times over the years. But uh, your greatest weapon is your mind, and you extra try to extricate yourself from the situation as fast as you can. And then if they can't, then you have the means to cause them to regret their error. Most times, not always. I've talked, I've talked my way out of four fights and two muggings. I talked my way out of two muggings and then actually three muggings. And then I talked my way about out of being robbed. There was all, it was, most of it was just telling jokes. (laughs) 
One of them, my best one was, I was working for this restaurant. We were doing the morning shift, and these guy and I was I had to leave at three o'clock in the morning, and I was walking by in this neighborhood in the in Brooklyn that wasn't great. And this guy called me, you know, said, "I'm gonna, I, do you have any money?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, I'm gonna follow you until you give me some money." And I turned to him very matter of factly, and I said, "I'm going to a job at three o'clock in the morning. If I had any money, don't you think I wouldn't be going to work at three o'clock in the morning?" And he said, "That makes a lot of sense," and he walked away. Yeah, it was like it was like, and, and all of a sudden I kept going to the subway. And I, th- I said, I think I almost got mugged. I was so asleep, but it was so matter of fact. And that is one thing that I don't know if there's. I think that there is a degree of like mental jujitsu that people don't really kind of, they don't really understand. I think that there's sometimes there can be these, you know, leveling ups of you know getting yourself you know higher and higher in terms of conflict. And I think that conflict resolution is an unsung uh, art. I, I'm in total agreement with you because if you can resolve it, nobody wins. Right. Nobody wins. Even you know, it's like today. Some of these young guys go, "Yeah, I'll, I'll beat you up." I said, "Yeah," and then you go tell all your friends you beat up a 74 year old guy, <laughs> and now you're into elder abuse. And uh, the meat I don't take off of you, my lawyer will get. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I think my father told me the only martial arts we know is the is is I sue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a, so, it's a it's a good sport, and it builds uh, flexibility. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I move as well as I do right now is because I train a lot. Right. Oh, still, you still train? Oh, yeah. I just have to be extremely careful. I've had my neck broken twice, and so i got to be real careful who I, I train with. Do you think that it also gives you a degree of humbleness? Like, do you learn how to become more humble and, and as a man? Because, you, because you're in these situations where, you know, there, you know there's not always going to be a—you're always going to win. You learn how to be a little bit more humble, right? Oh, if you don't get humble, you're going to find out that <laughs> there's a lot of T-Rexes in the world. <laughs> there are things out there that if you tear the head off, the body will flop around and kill you. So, yeah. Yeah, you got to really be careful. Yeah, so, Sam, Sam Colt made everybody the same size. Who's Sam Colt? Guy that invented the revolver. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you sure did, didn't he? Didn't yeah, he? unbelievable. So, take me down to take me down to now. Did you the move to Florida? Because that's when you started to get involved with knife making, right? Yeah, that's where I really got involved. I did a little bit when I was building airplanes. Uh, every Southern male is a frustrated knife maker. Some of us are more frustrated than others. But <laughs> everybody that works in a metal shop's made a knife. But right. I call them knife-shaped objects because we had no clue about heat treating or any of that kind of stuff. We had plenty of micarta, uh, wo- that old wood micarta, and you had stainless steel, and we had no idea what variety of stainless water you could harden it. But we made these stabby, pointy things and put handles on them, and that was a knife. So I call them knife-shaped objects. And then, oh, excuse me, I, I moved to Florida at 70, at 71, and I, I did a lot of odd jobs. I climbed radio towers and water tanks and stuff. Uh, I got married after I got down here and 
I adopted a couple of kids and then I had one and then you know I had to feed the things so you have to work so I'm doing a lot of different jobs and then I got a job doing heavy rigging in 72 and I had to work out of the Boilermakers local in Jacksonville which I later joined that union and uh, they had Boilermakers, iron ship fitters and uh, blacksmiths and there were no blacksmiths left in the local and so I was really interested I wanted to know about blacksmiths and so I got a book by Alex Beeler, and there was a page and a half on forging blades. I read that, and it tripped a trigger in me that has never gotten reset. I, I, I immediately rushed out and bought an anvil and a little rivet forge, and I went to making knives. And I was getting cross-cut saw blades and heating them up red hot in that rivet forge and cutting them out on the face of my anvil with a cold chisel. Well, Everybody says, we can't ruin an anvil. Yes, you can. (laughs) Why does this anvil face have like a chisel mark the shape of a knife? (laughs) Yeah, it it was terrible. I didn't know. I just did not know. And uh, so I was making these big fillet knives, and uh, and, uh, Heat Treat was very forgiving on that L6. And uh, my guys were cleaning these big king mackerel stuff offshore, and I was getting $15 and $20 a piece for the things. And uh, they were telling me I was wonderful, so I assumed that I was, and I didn't know another knife maker existed on the planet. You know, if you want a knife, you bought it from the store. That's where you got it, kind of like milk. Milk doesn't come from a cow, it comes from the store. Anyway, (laughs) so that was the thinking. And then I heard about a guy up on a job that I was working on that made knives. And so I've got three or four of these old fillet knives wrapped up in a snotty rag in my hip pocket, and I start looking for this fella, and his name is Bobby Tyson. And he's Redbone Forge down outside of Albany, Georgia. And uh, I went up, <laughs> went up to him, and he's leaned up against a big old acid tank. I said, you Bobby Tyson? And what I had in my head was, I'm going to show this guy something about making knives. You know, being young, arrogant, I thought I knew something. My friend told me I was wonderful, so I believed it. And uh <laughs> He says, I tried real humble, and he pulled out a most beautiful little pocket knife I'd ever seen in my life, made out of some mystery steel called D2 I'd never heard of. And it opened and shut and walked and talked and did all that stuff. And uh, I said, oh, my goodness. And then he says, I have books on making knives. I said, you have what? He (laughs) says, I have books on making knives. I said, where are these books? He said, "Uh, uh, I said, where do you live? He said, Jacksonville. I said, no, no, the street address. Where do you live? <laughs> and he made the mistake of telling me that. <laughs> I said, can I come and see you? And then he said, yes. That was his other mistake. I moved in with him. It was wonderful. Wow. He, he taught me more in one weekend than I would have learned in five years by myself. He was very kind to me, and I love him to this day. And I respect him. And, and what's so funny, he went from making two of these beautiful little pocket knives a day. All he does is forge stag handle skagel style knives. That's all he makes. <laughs> like I said, it's called, I'll give him a plug. Redbone Forge. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get you. We'll put him on the. I'll, I'll, I'll put him. I'll link him. I'll link his uh, website to the. Yeah, to he's the, a the wonderful notes. human being. He and his wife have been friends of mine for over 40 years. And I wow. uh, never forgot him. And uh, they, uh, my younger sister, my youngest sister had brain cancer. And uh, she was 22 years old, and she was terminal. 
and she wanted a pocket knife. And I called Bobby up and I said, would you help me make a pocket knife? And he helped me build that first knife for her and uh, wouldn't let me pay him a dime. You know, it's wow. uh, just wonderful human being. But he kind of set a standard for me for helping people because he was so kind and generous with his time. And he he's, he's a great guy. Anyway. Was he part of the ABS? No. No, he was pre-ABS. What, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, I know that for some, most of the listeners of this podcast are not knife makers. So the American Bladesman Society was, is still to this day, the gold standard in high level bladesmithing. And, you know, you are a master bladesmith. How did you get involved with the American Bladesman Society? Well, it was, uh, I was, I was forging and uh, started I started forging blades in 72, and about 76 is when Bill Moran popularized uh, pattern welding. At the same time, there was Pendray, and there was probably 40 blacksmith farriers around Ocala that were making pattern weld, but had no idea what they were making at the same time because they made all their own tongs, all their own hammers, and they would forge well bits and pieces, all this stuff together, and make a tool out of it. But they never bothered to etch it. And so I was trying to do this forge welding technique, and everything I made looked like a cabbage on a stick. And there wasn't any of it sticking <laughs> together. It was awful. And so I heard about this old cowboy, old Alfred Pendry, and I called him up and asked him if he'd show me how to forge weld. And it, well, it didn't work out too good, but it worked out okay. Uh, I finally got over there. And we figured we remained friends all those years because he was 88 miles away and I couldn't run over for lunch every day. But anyway, I drove over there to Williston and he was too busy to fool with me. So he put me with his dad, John Pendray, who made the first pattern welded down here in Florida that I know of. And uh, he said, I ain't so hard. And they had a mayonnaise etch on it. And that knife laid in their shoeing truck for years. That may still be in there. I don't know. But anyway, I started over there in the coal fire, and I start working. He's going, it's too hot. And I thought, well, how does he know that? You know, he's sitting with his back to me reading a paper. Well, what he was seeing was the sparks reflecting on the wall. I know now, but then I thought he was some kind of wizard. And uh, now it's too cold. Quit hitting it. Anyway, so I learned to forge weld with Mr. John. And uh, I came home and set the world on fire. I, uh, I, I had a... I'd, I'd call Alfred up, and I said, I want to do one of those Merovingian patterns like Daryl Meyer and him are doing. He said, well, it's just one more weld. And I said, well, what if it's bad? He said, well, the only weld that counts is the last one. If it's good, they're all good. So that's uh, the, kind of the little mantra that I've run everything I do off of. I don't stop until I'm finished. It's just like uh, Neil Kamamura was here. He wanted to make a million-layer blade. Well, I made one in about 79 or 80, and he wanted to do it, but he wanted to do it without cutting it up. And, of course, when you do it like that, you get a lot of bubbles and stuff in the pattern, and uh, you have to know how to fix that, and I knew how to fix it. So we made a million-layer blade while he was here and uh, took all the flaws out of it, and it cut like crazy. But that was the mindset that I had. I wouldn't let anything stop me. You flow down the hill like water, and you either build up, go around, or go under the stone. 
Do you think that your experience calling these guys up and, you know, getting kindness, you're getting kindness from all these knife makers, do you think that that's one of the reasons why you're as generous as you are with modern-day young guys who, I mean, I know I talk to Cliff Dufton often, and he always says he gives you a call when he has a question, and you're always very, you know, with Will and with Ashley and 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 um, all these really young, great people. I know that you're very thoughtful and helpful. Do you think it comes from the thoughtful and helpfulness that you received when you were younger? It it is, but it's also very self serving, and I'll tell you why. That uh, I love these brilliant young minds, and and the majority of my young friends have some form of autism, but it, it focuses <laughs> them right. like a laser on what they're doing. If they like it, you can't get them away from it, and you physically, I found out, do not have time. To go through the forest and follow all the paths. So what right. you do is you take these very bright minds and you latch onto them and you give them a map. And you, you help them find a way. They say, well, I want to go over here. I want to do this. And you, I show them the best I can how to get there. And 99.9% of them will find or discover something and they can't wait to tell you about it. So hmm. you physically don't have to go over the next hill. You just keep going down your path as fast as you can go to get there, and they're coming back and giving you reports, and if they give you a report on something you're really interested, then you go down there and look. You physically do not have the time to follow all these trails. Hmm. I learned that from Daryl Meyer. Daryl Meyer was probably my guru's guru. He's probably the best pattern welder that has lived in modern history in America. He's done more patterns than almost anybody I know. And uh, he's the one that inspired me to do that shooting scene. Now, I was doing some stuff with lettering and stuff in it. And uh, Glenn Gilmore, a friend of mine, that he, he does railings and presses and some pattern well. He, he took a bunch of pictures for me in Liège, Belgium, real early on back in the 70s to show me how they were doing the gun barrel patterns and the machinery and stuff. So I had some idea of how they were getting to where they were going. But I wanted to do something super. And then Daryl came up to me and he says, why don't you make something real? And I went, okay, I'll do something real. And then that's when I did that shooting scene. And as far as I know, it's never been repeated uh, at any level. It's a famous, it's a famous image of uh, a bird hunter with a right. dog. And then there's the rifles raised and, and there's like, you can see stuff coming out of the, I mean, it's an incredibly famous um, piece. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what your opinion is in regards to, to makers now, young makers now, and how they compare to when you were younger and then the people that you were associating with. Do you think that there's a difference in the mindset? On some of them. There's, there, you, I, I've, I've just had, uh, oh man, that's the problem with getting my age. I have, to fi- I have to dig through all this filing system to get the stuff I actually know. <laughs> Charlie, uh, Charles Lionheart, Ford down here, and the kid wanted to do uh, what do you call that thing? A Penrose pattern, and we spent all day sawing up bits and pieces for that. And I helped him get there with it, and uh, we got it done. 
those guys are the ones that amaze me. Uh, there's so many of them now. I mean, look at the, some of the stuff Mariko signed. And, yeah. uh, it's, I mean, the, the stuff is incredible. Peter Burt over in Hawaii is doing yep. stuff you can't even imagine. And nobody knows he's even there, hardly. I mean, there's the, uh, Nico Heinemann is doing a lot of stuff with the Woots up there. And, uh, you see these guys that are working on these very, very technical projects. And uh, the l- skill level of some of these young people is just absolutely amazing. I love it. I love being around them. See, I see you as being just like a Will Stelter, or I think it's just your age is different. But, I mean, I can imagine you at a young age just being like Charlie Lionheart or, or Will Stelter, any of these young guys who just are f- Laser focused. Like I find that I find that there be. I th- I feel like you're like a different breed, and I, you're almost the beginning of social media because I feel like you've been so, you know, uh, you've been so helpful with other makers. But at the same time, when you were younger, you were very communal with like the beginning of ABS and starting in with that and learn and meeting other makers. What was that like back then? Oh, it was a quest for knowledge. It was absolutely you're trying to find people who want to create, and uh, and I had absolutely no patience for somebody that didn't want to help or learn. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a funny thing: whenever you get on the pointy end of the spear in any business, doesn't matter what business it is, you suddenly become not a threat to everybody that's as good as it gets on the other spears, and doesn't matter what industry they're in, and suddenly all these doors open to you at very high levels because you're not a threat. You don't have time to climb down the spear and go climb up their spear and push them off. There's physically not enough time left. And so I've been fortunate enough to collect some of these very unique, uh, highly skilled scientists and metallurgists and stuff in the industry that helped me further my knowledge of what I want to do. And I wanted to do some explosion forming. I'd done a little bit when I worked at the aircraft company. We we made some stuff by explosion forming. And I wanted to apply it because hip machines, hot isothermal presses, I, uh, most people won't know what they are, but they're, they're a way to consolidate material with no flaws in the absence of air. And so explosion forming is a shortcut for that. So I wanted to make an explosion chamber where I could literally heat up my little canister of stuff, throw it in a hole, slam the lid, and set off a known amount of explosive in there and get 100,000 PSI and consolidate it and bleed it off. And so I called my friend Steve Caldwell, who is, he's the top weapons guy for Teledyne, and he's a friend of mine. And I, I said, I, this is what I want to do. He said, well, you need to talk to this guy. Anyway, I called this guy up this lab, and he says, well, who are you with? I said, I'm with myself. And he goes... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but what's your certification and what are all your OSHA regulations? I said, you don't understand. I've been blowing up stuff since I was a kid, and I've still got all my fingers and my eyes. And he said, well, you, you can't do it with it. He started telling me 15 ways I couldn't do it, and I got real frustrated with him. I said, well, you don't understand. I'm going to do this. I said, so if you're ever in your shop one day and you look out the window and you see a blinding white light and feel a pressure wave come over the horizon, you know I've failed by... And that's it. <laughs> what is what is explosion forming? Uh, and, and what you do is put an enormous amount of pressure in the absence of oxygen, and it will cause 
things that don't even like each other to weld. Huh. Yeah. So how, yeah. So what were you what so what were some of the things you were making using that technique yeah, once you some, finally com- some committed that committed that guy? Mosa- mosaic stuff. Wow. Yeah, you put it in a can, pull a vacuum on it in a hot isothermal press. What they do is a hip machine. You put it in a bag, you put it down in there, and they put 45,000 pounds or more of argon liquid in there, pressure, and then they heat it up to 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, and it consolidates it into a perfectly solid mass with no flaws because there's no oxygen. And uh, they make parts out of it. They use it in industry for years, but the machines are incredibly expensive, and they're very uh, high cost to run and maintain. Uh, if you take a 10-pound bag of stuff to one of these companies, it'll cost you anywhere of $1,000, $2,000 to have them do it for you. The machines are half a million dollars. You can't afford one of those on a blacksmith's wages. So what I was looking for was a way to do that without having to buy into that system. And explosion farming is a way to make that happen without having to deal with it. I can get the pressure. Heat and pressure is what makes it happen. I just can't cycle it as long as they can. So that if you know the amount of explosive in a containment, then you can generate, you know, 100,000 pounds per square inch pretty easy. And uh, then you just bleed the pressure off and take the part out and you're done. So how did you transform that in that technique into your own shop? Because it sounds like the equipment was almost impossible to have. Well, it is because I was going to use an eight-inch gun breech, and the only one I could find was in Barbados, and they wouldn't let me bring it in the country. So I had to figure out another way to do it. <laughs> now I'm using. But so I, now I use hydraulics. <laughs> so back to the ABS. Right. At what point did you? What I mean, what point did you? Was was testing even in your mind? Testing for these certifications. What was your your history as you know a young man in the ABS? All right. Well, what we did is Alfred and I started going up to Ashoka, and that was a gathering spot. There was Fikes, Fog, Schmidt, and Moran was up there, and then Fikes and Fog and Schmidt were they were kind of Danny Maragney where they were like the leaders of the pack up on the East Coast. And uh, so Pendry and I were traveling up there, 79, 80, 81. And uh, that's when they were forming the Mastersmith's rating for that. And the first Mastersmith's test was a one-inch piece of steel, one-inch square bar, and you had to forge an integral shape out. That was the first test. And then they decided they needed uh, something that was edge-hardened. That was the next one. And... uh, Anyway, my papers are signed in 81, which is when the original bunch went through, but I'm not on the books until 83, and that was my fault. Uh, Bill wanted to get his original crew in there, and I didn't understand it, and I've been young and full of myself. And anyway, we got into a pretty heated argument, and it kind of devolved, and then it all ironed out over time, and so we're all good. So I'm the oldest continuously serving that's still actually making blades ABS Mastersmith. How do you, now that you've, you've been there from the beginning and you've seen how knife makers and bladesmiths have kind of grown to, I mean, after all these years, 
Have you? What have you noticed in terms of the growth of the ABS and the the followers? Really, the members. It's the only organization they still have that has standards. Uh, that's here in the U.S. Uh, the South African Knife Makers Guild is very strict. They're old school, but uh, it's a set of standards. If you want to compete, and uh, in a public arena uh, and be judged by subjectively by a, a, a bunch of peers, then it's okay. Uh, like I said, it's it's worth doing. It's just like getting a degree from a university. It doesn't make you skilled at a job. What it does is it shows people you're able to complete a task. I would imagine that, you, that yeah, that, I, that's a really great way to put, to put it as in terms of it's almost like this foundation that right. you can kind of you have as a guarantee is like a guarantee almost. Right. You know, when you it, when you it hear shows somebody's that you do the basics. Yeah. So one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know I when I'm, I'm when I when we've talked before and I see how you are, I notice that you 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 do things in in result of becoming a better person or better maker better whatever i love this story of how you got into weightlifting competitive weightlifting (laughs) the competitive weightlifting is so fabulous because when i was listening to josh smith's uh interview with you you said that you were having you were having back pain and then you decided that you needed to do some weightlifting yeah tell that story yeah I, I, i actually got some really smart friends that are orthopedic surgeons and stuff and they buy a few knives now and then Bless them. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway I, uh, what happens is in our business and the way you work and I work, we work with our heads down, which gives us neck problems. And then we work like crabs. Our arms are moving around in front of us, picking up stuff, doing stuff. So that front girdle of your body stays pretty tight. It's just like your legs usually last longer if you walk a lot. So that, But what happens is you don't work the back girdle, your shoulders, so... Then that gets out of balance, and then these shoulder joints start coming open, and it's impinging the meat and the tendons in there, and it hurts like hell. I got to where I couldn't hold a cup of coffee. It hurts so bad. And started, the chainsaw was out, out of the question. And so I talked to a friend of mine and uh, that was a neurosurgeon, and he said, I'm going to give you a set of exercises. You need to do these exercises. So I went down to a local little gym, and I'm down there doing some little dumbbell work with my little five and ten, ten pound dumbbells and there's a guy over there that looks like a sawed off refrigerator and he's about 60, he was late 60s then and I recognized him he was a local police chief and his name's Dutch Schultz Sheldon Schultz and a wonderful guy, love him and uh, he's built like a refrigerator he's square from the top to the bottom and uh I looked at him, and he's doing good mornings, which is bending over at the waist with 500 pounds. Oh, my God. And I'm looking at him, and I've got my little dumbbells, and I I wasn't wearing short shorts, but I could have been. Anyway, (laughs) 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 he looked at me and said, I need a training partner. And I said, okay, Uh, what's that involved? He said, well, I need to, I want to. You want to lift weights? And I, I used to lift weights a little bit, but I mean, I mean, it wasn't competitive. This was like backyard stuff. And uh, and so he said, I want you to train with me. And I said, okay. So I started training. And then it's my normal thing that happens to me. If I get interested in something, I want to know everything there is to know about it. 
and within seven months, I'd broken the Florida State bench press record in my age and weight bracket and went on to break eight world records. I trained That's for crazy. Seven, seven years, yeah. Did, did, you cons- did you want to become competitive, or what, what possessed you to go from you know, helping this guy train to all of a sudden being submitted into these tournaments? Oh, I, I, he, he, he was a tournament guy. And I, I was just going along for the ride, but I got to where I was driving the ship. That's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, that's amazing to me because what I, you know, I make jokes because when I was a metal worker in metal shops, we were just 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 lifting, getting getting steel on the steel racks, twenty foot lengths of steel on the steel mm-hmm. racks. It's always bending over and lifting stuff up. And there was a time where I was just like, at some point, I can't be doing this because it's like it's just so brutal. And now I tell my my knife maker or my friends and metalworking friends, I'm like I never being a knife maker, I don't have to lift anything over twenty five pounds. And mm-hmm. it was like. So for the fact that you were to kind of, how did it change the, how did the weightlifting change the way you worked? Oh, it changed everything because I was 62 years old when I started that. Wow. Like I said, I set eight bench records and a curl record. I curled 160 pounds. Jeez. That's a lot of weight. Yeah. (laughs) Especially for all of that. Yeah, it it was fun. I, and you have the any... thing is, is, I wasn't competing against other people. I was competing against the records. And that's what we went for, is to break the records. And I did a Russian training system that had to be highly modified because of my age. Because your your gains are made in the bed. They're not made in the gym. you got to rest. At, when you're older, you've got to learn how to time that so that you peak right at the time of the meet. It's very hard to do. But now I've locked out over 500 pounds in the gym. Gym lifting is a totally different thing. That's just like these guys doing cutting contests in their backyard. That's great with their friends. But when they get into a public arena, that's different. And the same way, I, all of my stuff was drug tested. We, uh, I still hold a U.S. Uh, uh, what the hell is I'm I'm going into one of my senior moments. But anyway, don't I, worry. I, anyway, I, I still hold a couple of the records. They hadn't been broken yet. Do you have any funny stories of competing or like weird things that you saw? I can only imagine during the competitions <laughs> that there were some strange like going, things. You go to one of these weight meets, it's like going to a bar room in Star Wars. <laughs> You've never seen so many misshapen human beings in your whole life. <laughs> I can only imagine the there specimens one, you're looking was, at. There was one that was a particularly... And, uh, and and I like I said I'm 74 now so I can I can equate this guy. We went to a weight meet in Georgia, and there was a guy got up and his, the, of course you have to wear these Olympic suits, these singlets. And right. this old man got up and his arms were hanging like kites in the wind, and uh, his head was shiny slick with these little wisps of white hair. Looked like he escaped out of Chernobyl. And uh, his, his weight suit's hanging like he had a wet diaper, and he had a trimmer. And uh, this guy gets up, and I thought, my God, he's going to die before he walks up there. And he, this guy didn't look like he could pick up a bag of groceries, I swear. And he's probably 175 or 80 pounds, and there was over 400 pounds on this bar. And he walks up that bar, and he just slowly shakes himself down and gets a hold of it. And the minute he got a hold of it, he stopped shaking, and he stood up with it, 
and held it. And then most of these guys, the big guys, they beat their chest and scream and do all this stupid shit. That old man just stood up with it and held it there, and the judge gave him a green light. He set the damn thing down like you were putting a cat down. <laughs> and I looked at Dutch, and he looked at me, and I said, do you believe that? And I said, no, sir, I don't. And then Dutch elbows me, and he says, I don't look that bad, do I? I said, no. <laughs> but God bless him. I mean, he yeah. looked like a crazy person, but he, he made it happen. He made it happen, and I, I couldn't have pulled that weight off the floor at that time with a gun in my ear. It wasn't going to happen. I was amazed. I can only, ima- I can only imagine the because I remember as a kid being in, like, wrestling tournaments and just, like, I, seeing kids throwing up and being nervous and nosebleeds and all the, the weird mm. things and the mothers tucking in their, parting their hair before the meets and stuff like that. I can only imagine that at a weightlifting tournament – you see some like odd things. Oh my, yeah. Uh, one of the guys that used to lift with us, he's uh, <laughs> J.C. Miller. He's six four and three hundred and eight pounds. Got about a twenty three inch arm on him. And uh, I told him he needed to use white ink on his tattoos so they show. This is the darkest giant guy you've ever met in your life, and just a sweetheart. And uh. He he was a friend of ours and uh, just amazing athlete. I mean, what an ounce of fat on this guy! And we went we went to a weight meet down in Tampa one time. It was so funny. It was down in the Latin Quarter and it was rough area and old rusty weights and all that stuff. And like I said, it looked like a scene from uh, bar scene in Star Wars. And JC came in late. He'd driven down with his wife later. And when he walked in the door, the whole gym went quiet. I went, oh, my. <laughs> just that guy could move the world. I've seen him yeah. bench 500 in a T-shirt oh and uh, for reps. I mean, it was just amazing human being. The sweetest young man you'd want to meet. But he, is, he was a monster. He got a kid of his that's got a full ride to Miami right now. Wow. Yeah. That- did you see a lot of, like, drug abuse? Like, I can imagine that yeah. there's a lot of steroids and drug abuse. Oh, yeah. Well, there was one gal. We were up in Forsyth, Georgia. She was out of meat. She had on pancake makeup. And uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, the whiskers were coming out through the makeup. That was pretty bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, kind of uh, that doesn't bother me. I don't care. I don't care what people do in their private lives. That's their business. But that, yeah. uh, you can't compete against the, the drug eaters. And uh, most of the meets we went to were, quote, drug tested. But all the U.S. Uh, 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 APA stuff is all drug tested. And that was one of the reasons why I finally stopped it. Because Dutch and I were winning all the time. And uh, so it got to be that they would test us no matter what. And I finally just had a belly full of it. And I said, I had enough of this shit. I'm tired of waking up sore. I did it for seven years. Wow. Now, all right. Now, the next thing is, is I want to get back into the knife making and stuff like that. But the the airboat, you have this airboat that I've seen. Were you, were you an airboat racer? Is I right when I yeah. said that? Yeah, I actually won that. <laughs> won the national race. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do anything a little bit. No, so, apparently not. 
Now, uh, long story short, I got a friend of mine that cost me a hell of a bunch of money. It's Brian Parker. And, uh, and, and Brian raced airboats, and he's good at it. And I had this really nice fishing airboat for just fishing. I should have kept it. And uh, long story short, Laura and I went over to a little outlaw race over on a place called Burn Island in uh, Lake Lockloosa. And he had an alcohol boat over there. I had about 1,500 horsepower and a 14-foot boat that weighed almost nothing. And uh, we drove up just to watch, and he says, you want to drive the race boat? Uh, well, yeah. Well, that thing will kill you. Anyway, I got in it, and in order to hold the boat on the water, you have to keep power on it, a lot of power on it, or it'll start hopping, and it'll throw you out. So you have to hold it down. I, I, you really have to know what you're doing, and I didn't. But he... he let me drive it. So I made a couple of passes and it was bouncing and surging and bouncing and hopping and everybody on the bank screaming their head off at me to stand in it and then my ego whipped my ass and I turned around and those things only run 400 feet for a reason because after that they fly and uh, so I stood in it and held it down and when I went out the other end I was probably running close to 100 98 to 100 Oh and uh, come out the other end, and, and uh, I held it down because I was I was either going to die right there, or I was going to make that boat run. I, I wasn't going to go back to the bank a loser. It just wasn't happening. I'd rather die anyway. So that's part of what's wrong with my thinking process. Anyway, so I drive back to the bank. I got out of the boat and I'm shaking so hard that I look like I, I have Parkinson, and then. Laura went, oh, no, and I went, oh, yeah, and I went to Miami the next day to buy a race hole, and I put a <laughs> 434 small block in it that made 640 on the carburetor, 900 with the nitrous on it, and I went racing. So an airboat, tell me the history behind airboats, because from what I understand, I mean, I don't really know much about boats, but, I mean, there's no keel on the bottom of it. No, the and flat bottom, the, or they got and, a step hole. And and then you're you, the the pilot is kind of high higher than you'd expect. Yeah. You're higher up on the boat than a normal boat. Right. What's the purpose of that? And then there's a big fan. There's a giant fan behind you that's propelling right. the whole got thing. Right. a big propeller. And they're either aircraft engines or they're automobile engines with gear drives. And I run automobile engines with gear drives because you make a lot more horsepower and you turn a lot bigger prop and go a lot faster. What's the history behind, what would be the, the reasoning behind the airboats shallow as opposed water. to other boats? Their shallow water uh -huh. boats are for running marsh where there is no water. They'll run dry. I've been a mile and a half from the water in my boat several times. And uh, they, if you put enough power on a brick, it'll fly. <laughs> so, but, why, but why is the pilot so high up? So you can see I'm asking because I just don't know. You've got to see over the grass. Oh, so you don't hit like a grass. log or something. Right. You've got to be able to see, and so you want to set up high to see. And then everything is steered by vectoring the uh, exhaust of that big fan. Huh. So how does that, I mean, be, how does that make it, what's the difference between um, steering or driving an airboat versus driving like a regular motorboat? How does it uh, different? Well, a motorboat is all the torque is put in the water. And where airboats go, there is no water a lot of times. So huh. you're sliding over the top of stuff. It's like a sled or a um, hovercraft 
that runs on a cushion air uh, boats they fly in ground effect or they run along the bottom and they put slick coatings on the bottom of them some of them put polymer on and then you use enough horsepower it pushes the boat forward like a sled what a so how how when you're when you have your airboat on the water i mean how much how much are you uh, how deep are you what's your draft i guess that's the expre- what the expression i mean how Zero. deep are you in the water yeah if Zero. it's still 2 or 3 inches and if it's uh, like i said it'll run where there is no water it doesn't care wow so you can like a 2 inches of water 1 inch of water no problem if i got 1 inch of water i'll go faster than i will in 8 feet of water why is that hydrodynamics you're running in ground effect wow i love seeing the videos of you on that boat and then there was one where you 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 uh bring it out of the water back onto the land and it was just seemed like i mean it's just an incredible it's an incredible thing i i, I it's just amazing to me so when you got the when you got the airboat i mean what were, were you planning on racing it or no, when I got it originally, it was just for fishing. You can get to areas you can't get any other way. Huh. It's a, it's the ultimate ATV. It'll go anywhere. Wow. And That's uh, amazing. They're amazing. You put the horsepower on it, it'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Back to the back to knife making. I mean, you're 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 known for canister Damascus and the uh, innovations that you've made that's now become very popular. Uh, what was that like? How did you get involved with kind of creating the canister Damascus? Well, Daryl Meyer and that bunch were fooling with canisters, and I was fooling with canisters at seventy nine and eighty a little bit because we'd heard about this hip process and we we're trying to circumvent that hot isothermal press. So the whole secret to welding anything is keeping the air off of it. If you can keep the air off of it, that's fine. And that it leads to a comical story I'll try to remember to tell you. But anyway, that's what this was about. So I was doing solids in there, but the first powder metal that I know of being done was me and Gary Runyon. Gary Runyon introduced me to powder metal technology. He was a powder guy for Teledyne. And uh, so he would, it was at the, the first Batson hammering at his house when they had the first one. And uh, he was up there, and I've been doing canisters for a while, and he was up there trying to mix some nickel powder and borax and wick it into a piece of cable and weld it. And, and I walked up to him and I said, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm trying to weld this. And I said, well, if you'll put that in a piece of pipe and put a cap on it, it'll weld. And that was the first powder metal canister that I know of. And then I, I developed a whole bunch of technique off of that. And so we welded that, and then I went on, and then he had introduced me to the powder. And then I was the first guy to do my actual signature in a bar. And it came from that adventure and i had a, a friend of mine uh joe heidevick cut my signature with an edm machine which is basically a machine that cuts with a wire very sophisticated very expensive machine but he did my actual signature and then i screwed it up the first time it didn't work i was trying to put a little sheet nickel in it and uh, we were sitting over there looking at the second one and he said too bad we can't pour that in there and i went oh my goodness we can and then I remember that nickel powder, so I bought some nickel powder 
And the only way you could buy that powder, I had to mortgage my house to buy that powder. It was a 20-gallon drum of nickel powder. I'm still using out of it since 80. Wow. I still got it, and I'm still <laughs> using out of it. But I put that signature together, and it's my actual signature. I have some several pieces of that bar left. But that one thing leads to another, to another, to another. If you go, if you ever go up to um, uh, Nick Rossi's well, New England, what is that? School? New England School of Metal. Work. I, yeah, I did a, a powder metal class up there. I had two guys in that class that had never forged welded before, and you wouldn't believe the work they did. Hmm. By just freeing their minds up and saying, let's do this. And they did wow. vines and patterns and just amazing. They got a whole display up there of stuff that we did. But what it did is it it took out all this very expensive CNC machinery out of the equation. You could make all these shapes and stuff without having to use that very, very expensive equipment to get what you wanted. And that was the whole hmm. idea of it. One of the things I I would imagine a lot of a lot of makers now learn or get influenced by YouTube videos or Instagram or watching things. I'm surprised that there's not as many makers who have an experience uh, or history in metal shops that there that 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 there would be like there's in my mind. I mean, I worked in a metal shop, and I know that you've been in metal shops, and there. But there's a lot of people who just feel more comfortable around metal, and I would just imagine for you, you have a much more comfortable feeling towards using machinery and trying new techniques and learning new things. I would think that that would have been a real benefit to you as a knife maker, as a bladesmith. Yeah, but uh, I'm not afraid of anything. And that's right. been a that's caused me to spend many hours in the hospital. <laughs> Before we, I want to get into the hospital thing because I want to talk about that uh, the the uh, surgery you just had. But you beforehand we were talking about um, canister Damascus, and you said you were going to have a humorous story to add. I don't know. If oh yeah, that, that was funny. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you reminded me. That uh, yeah, I worked out this canister thing, and I thought, oh man. I, anyway, I took a set of. Uh, Freon gauges, like you put Freon in a car with. Yeah. And I hooked up a vacuum pump to it, and I, the whole secret to any of this Damascus, I don't care how you're doing it, is that, uh, whether you're using kerosene or borax or whatever, what you're doing is trying to keep the oxygen off of it. That oxygen will bind up any anything and turns it into an oxide, and you got a problem. So the idea is to keep the oxygen out. Well, I figured if I could make this canister up. So I put a vacuum pump on my can using a hollow tube and these vacuum gauges and a vacuum pump. But what happened the minute I started forging that, it got a crack in it and it's sucking air right over the part, which defeated the purpose of having the vacuum. Right. So I thought, well, if I put a little nitrogen in there and I could get free nitrogen, I had a friend of mine worked at the phone company, he threw me off some nitrogen bottles. So I was bleeding a little nitrogen in there and I had this octopus rig, and I could weld at temperatures. If I told you how cold I was welding, you'd call me a liar. I'd have to show you. But I was welding at very, very low temperatures and getting perfect welds. And uh, and I was so proud, <laughs> so proud of this rig that I'd fixed up. I couldn't wait to, it's, it's like this thing, you know, you, you can't explore every path. Well, Daryl Meyer would do that with me. He'd send me down the trail. And uh, then I'd come back with a report, well, either do it or don't do it kind of thing. 
So I couldn't wait to tell him all about this octopus rig where I was running a vacuum pump and bleeding nitrogen and then putting a little positive pressure of nitrogen and welding his cans up. And I, said, I, I breathlessly told him this whole story. He went, yeah, he said, well, I just put two or three drops of diesel in mine, leave a vent hole, and I don't have to do all that. <laughs> so, yeah. What did what did you say when you when he said that? What did you say? I was flabbergasted. I wanted to hit him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he accomplished the same thing with a simpler method. So I went to diesel and said, "Heck with all that stuff." Now I use that octopus rig now, but I use it for titanium. Titanium is just well, I'm forge welding titanium. Then I then I use the octopus rig. But back to your hospital thing, you recently had um, a piece of metal removed from your head, and it was, and you had on Instagram you had pictures of the, the scars on your head. It was something that you had uh, from an accident you had done a long time ago. Right. What what, what was the accident? In 1982, I was working on a lobster tail helmet with a kid from the University of Florida. We were recreating this helmet. What's a, went, what's a lobster tail helmet? Yeah, it's a Roman helmet. Oh, okay. We were okay. doing a reproduction of one of these Roman helmets, and we were in my Ford shop up in Palaka, Florida, and uh, so I had a uh, 900cc Kawasaki, and I went to get a bucket of chicken and never came back. <laughs> I had a woman turn into me head on, oh and my I, God. I hit a 72 Oldsmobile, and I totaled it with my face and my legs. Oh, my God. I went through the windshield of the car and out on the street on the other side. And stood up and went, that wasn't very much fun. Anyway, it broke both wrists. My finger, little finger was hanging in the skin. I was cut through the bone. Had a big hole knocked in my head. And uh, broke my cheekbones. Fractured all my teeth. Uh, other than that, it didn't hurt me a bit. Anyway, they, <laughs> there was a bunch of glass and stuff in my head. And, uh, and in my arms. And that glass worked out for about four years. And then it all settled down, and then I had one little spot that was bad. I had a buddy of mine, a dermatologist. He cut it, and they got a quarter-inch chunk of glass out of my skull. Anyway, that all settled down about a year and a half ago. Anyway, I was up at Jason Knight's, and we were in a junk shop. And I hit a low-hanging door jam with my head. Well, my head was still full of glass, and I didn't know it. And so I hit that door jam and it knocked all that stuff loose and uh so i go home and my head wouldn't heal up and uh, it kept getting worse and worse and i thought man that's, that's that's not feeling good anyway i went to four different doctors before i found one that would do what i wanted to do uh, and I, I wanted to cut all that out of there uh, so they went in and they went in a half inch wide down to the skull 67 stitches later they closed us up and the whole time the guy's cutting on my head, he's going, God, I hope I don't cut myself on this glass. I went, how much glass is in there? I'm going to wait. You know, they didn't knock me out to do this. Anyway, so I had that. And then the doctor before that had taken two pieces of steel out of my eyelid that apparently had been in there since that same wreck. Oh, my God. How yeah. much glass was left in your head? I don't know. I never got the pathology back on it, but it was enough. It was making him nervous while he was cutting on me. God. Yeah. Could you? Could you? Could you feel it in your? Uh, yeah, under you your could skin? feel someone right because you could rub it and it hurt. I mean, it it hurt. 
Oh my god! Yeah, get it cut out. Well, I'm glad you got. I'm glad you got that taken taken care of. Oh yeah, I look like I've been attacked by Lord Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of which, speaking of which, I want to congratulate you on. I got the. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to know more about uh, Damascus, uh, if you want to learn more about Canister Damascus, go to Jason Knight's uh, website for. I think it's KnightForge.com. And get the Forge series. The first series, the first season, um, the first season he does um, the Elemental Knife. The second season is Steve does the whole thing on Canister Damascus. Everything you're going to want to know about how you can make a Canister Damascus at home. And then the third series is uh, a Forge Integral. Uh, chef knife with Jason Knight, and I have all three of those. And I think that I think that you did such a wonderful job in that. Yeah, it came out good. It was a lot of fun, too. Working with Jason is just a blessing. I've known him since he's about 14 years old. Really? Yeah. He wrote a How paper did... He wrote a paper on me when he was in high school. What was a young Jason Knight like? Just like he is now, only with more hair. <laughs> more hair? He's getting more hair now? Yeah. More hair on his face, not on yeah, his head. More hair on his face. No, he, he's always been a super talented guy. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time together, but I was always aware of him, and he's an extremely gifted guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's got an eye for design that's extraordinary. Well, you've been so supportive to so many up-and-coming makers, and I know that, you know, when I started to say that you were going to come on, I got so many messages, so looking forward to hearing your story and also thanking you for the support that you've given. And that's one thing I'm going to tell you. My little story with you was not only, oh, well, I got two couple stories. The the first time I met you is at the Blade Show, but I'm going to come back to that at the end. But there was when you, when you when I was teaching at uh, Doghouse Forge and you came up for the day, it was such an honor for me to have you there. And one of the things, well, a couple of the things, I'll tell you the, the beautiful thing and then the scary thing. The one of the things is there was a young guy there named, named Gabe, and you were so thoughtful and helpful towards him. Um, and you were just you were with all the students. You were just so. You were just, it seemed like you were really excited to be there. And I really appreciated your your support. And it was just really wonderful to have you there. I, I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy your company. And I enjoy Jonathan. And I think what you're doing down there is exceptional. And I, 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 that's why I went. And it was fun. Plus, I wanted to I'll watch you, you make tongs. <laughs> I'll tell you the scary part. The scary, funny part was, and I'm going to link this in the Instagram. There was, there. I have we Jonathan and I have this uh, customer's name is Mark. He's just a great guy, and he he's also had, going through some health issues. He's got like you know he showed up. This is how tough this guy is. He shows up with an oxygen tank, and he's going to forge. He's going to do two days of forging and forge some pair of tongs, and we're going to do bottle openers. And you know we also you know John and I, Jonathan and I, are kind of kept an eye on too because you know. He is, you know, in there with an oxygen tank. You know, at the same time, you just want to keep one eye on him. So every so often, when he wasn't, and he had never forged before, so every so often, I, you know, help him, you know, finish his tongs and work on his tongs. So there's one moment where I'm looking, I'm, I, I grab his tongs out of the forge and I'm helping him kind of like, you know, clean some things up and show him some things. And on my left, 
On my left is Jonathan Porter, who makes me nervous anyway because he is such an extraordinary black, uh, so extraordinary knife maker and accomplished farrier. He the the the, the blacksmithing he's done with forged uh, uh, horseshoes. He's gave given me a, he uh, a competition horseshoes. They're just extraordinary. He's an extraordinarily talented guy. So he's on my left. Then Steve, I see Steve Schwarzer. You have pulled your phone out and start videotaping me. And then as I'm hitting, Mark is saying anytime he thinks, and he's not a blacksmith, so he doesn't know. Anytime he thinks I mishit something, he's saying whoops, as in I made a mishit. So every time I'm hitting, he goes whoops, and I'm just looking around. I got Jonathan on one side, and Steve Schwarzer on the other side. Me, everyone's videotaping me, and then I got this, you know, the peanut gallery saying whoops every five minutes. It was such a funny experience, but at the same time, I felt incredible pressure. And the most pressure was because you you pulled your phone out to take a video of it. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to be able to get home and remember what you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was it was an extraordinary experience, and I just I really appreciate appreciated your time and your energy. And I know that there's so many blacksmiths and bladesmiths and makers out there who, you know, you represent something that's a lot different than. And I, I, this podcast has been really interesting to me because I've been talking to so many talented makers who have their 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 experiences and their have have. Um, sculpted their behavior and their behavior has sculpted their direction. So like, you know, a lot of times makers will be, you know, maybe solitary people or whatever, and they're inspired by their parents or they're, you know, do things despite their parents. And I think that you represent this, like, because you're master bladesmith and you're such a nice guy and you're so supportive, I think you give this legitimacy to what a lot of people are doing. And I know that they really appreciate it. I appreciate that. That, uh, you know, you try to give back to stuff. And uh, one of the things I try to do is uh, give people confidence to step off. And by meaning step off, I mean, don't be afraid to try it. The easy stuff doesn't make you grow. And on a, on a sidebar, I had a, a, a Neil call me from Hawaii. And he said, I've got a guy in my shop that wants to come take a class from you. And I went, okay, sure. Anyway, a young man called me, and and, uh, he wanted to come down. He said, I want to get my dad to come down. I said, well, where's his dad from? He said, well, my dad's from Alaska. I went, okay. Well, I didn't know it, but they were pretty much alienated. They hadn't spoken a, a lot. And I said, well, come on. Anyway, they both came down. And we had the best time. And they went out there. I took them down on the lake, and we played with the boat, and we did all kinds of stuff. But they went home with a renewed relationship. And that was, to me, was more valuable than anything they could have made. And Hmm. uh, I got a note from the young man the other day. He, He sent me a picture of a knife his dad had made and sent to him. He said, you have no idea how much this knife means to me. Because it came from my dad, and I thought that that's special. That that that's the kind of stuff that makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Can't get much better than that. Can't get that much better than that, Steve Schwarzer. What's next for you? What's next for you? I want to know what's next. Well, I'm working. Uh, actually, I'm working with that coal iron bunch, and they're building me a 50 ton C frame with a with one of the uh, computers on it. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, it's going to allow me to do some very, very precise patterning that I've been wanting to do for a while. I'm excited about that. Uh, I've just got a bunch of bunch of irons in the fire. Of course, I'm working with Ashley on her, her thing. And uh, I just, I don't know. I'm just excited. I, uh, you know, every day is an adventure. <laughs> I just, I want to get as many of them as I can. I'm, I'm, well, I, I'm looking at my timeline. I'm going, man, I got to hurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can't thank you enough. And, and uh, meanwhile, those coal iron work, uh, the computer presses, now all of a sudden kiss blocks are out. Those are very exciting. I can't wait to see what you do with those. But I mean, what's more to say than Steve Schwarzer? You are a legend, and you know you've me- you mean a lot to a lot of people. You mean a lot to me, and I know that there are a lot of other makers who you've inspired. And it's just you know you've be- you're you're a very very important person in a lot of people's lives. Well, I, I would I would end up with this: never hesitate to tell your friends that you love them. Because you never know when it'll be the last time. Yesterday, I had a friend of mine pass suddenly. He fell out of bed. Him and his wife done everything together. And he fell out of bed, and she was laughing. He was laughing. She she said, I can't get you up. And then she realized he was gone. And uh, that's how fast it can happen. So I always tell my friends I love them. And And I mean what I say. Well, I do it because people are so important. They add so much to your life. It's like Ash, and and uh, and there's so many talented people. My wife and friends, and you. I even love you. <laughs> I got your fishing lure hanging in my kitchen. But uh, it's it's amazing the quality of people out there, and everybody has something to add. And I'd be about to. I guess that's it. Steve Schwarzer. Unbelievable. Very, very, you're very, very important to me, and I appreciate your friendship. And um, I was super psyched to be able to send you some uh, rivets from the, the uh, Tappan Zee Bridge. I, I hope you, them. I hope it's, hope you get to use them something something cool i might i might be able to get some uh one of the listeners might be giving me some parts of the uh, statue of liberty i'll make sure i send you some of that too That'd be um, yeah you you know who you are get it over here guys and we'll, we'll get it squared away <laughs> before we before we end there's a couple of things i a couple of little pieces of business um October 8th and 11th, the Makers Camp, Catskill Mountain Makers Camp, will be having a gathering. Uh, Makers Camp will be happening in uh, at, at Makers Camp. So we'll be there. I'll be there with uh, John Ariani, uh, Jesse Savage, Carrie Savage, uh, Cliff Dufton, uh, Damascus Dave will probably be there. I know that Chris Cash and most of those guys will all be there. So definitely go check out Catskill Mountain Makers Camp, October 8th through 11th. And last but not least, my friend um, Bob Menard of uh, the NEB, the New England Blacksmiths, they're going to be having a fall meet on the 17th, 18th, and 19th. You should definitely get your get your membership over at the NEB, be supportive of these organizations, Abana, 
NEB, these things, ABS, it's important to be uh, supportive of these organizations because as they keep growing and keep getting better, they have more opportunities to do things. And um, Ziva Gottlieb will be at the fall meet. Ziva Gottlieb is a student of Uri Hoffi. And I don't know if you remember this, Steve. I had to bring this up. The first time I met you, I was with Will Stelter, and I was also with my old lead man, John Ledford. I don't know if you remember John Ledford at all, but he's just awesome guy from Alabama, the guy who taught me everything about blacksmithing, just like besides Uri Hoffi, John showed me the traditional ways you make railings, and we did a lot of railings together. We have a very funny story. He had a very funny story of Ziva Gottlieb taking uh, taking Uri Hoffi to a strip joint. So if you go to the NEB fall meet, you can go harass Zivik, ask him all about it. It's definitely worth it just for that story. I I, I know the story, but you got to ask Zivik. So go check out the NEB, uh, the fall meet, the 17th, 18th, and 19th of, August, of September. All right? Guys. Thank you very much. We have a lot of big shows coming up. We got Tony Atzi, Jimmy Duresta, uh, Leah Arapach has got a show coming up on Netflix. I want you to watch it before I interview her. Uh, it will be on in the first week of September. I think it's called May, uh, Metal Shop Masters or something like that. And that's it. Steve Schwarzer, thank you so much for coming by. You're you're the man. You are the man. You're welcome, brother. Appreciate you so much. I appreciate you. All right, guys, we'll see you next week with Tony Iazzi. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.